Good morning and welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. Today we're on episode number 38. It is March 1st. Lowe's forecasting a 7% a decline in revenue ahead thanks to a weak home ownership spend. Never forget that homeowners spend more money when home prices are going up and the opposite when home prices are going down. Not terribly much of a surprise. New York City is seeing Elon Musk over at Twitter scale back New York offices uh, by trying to sublease 200,000 square feet of office space. It's all part of Elon Musk's effort to make Twitter substantially more efficient and lean and bring it to profitability. Uh, that uh, follows about uh, 200 more layoffs this weekend. Colgate wants to divest from their pet food business. Now, I personally actually see that as an inflationary red flag. One of the things that I've been noticing and I've been hearing about anecdotally from pet store owners, including one who is a course member who's so kind to send me some information from his Las Vegas pet store, it seems like pet stores are still seeing or costs rise in many different areas of their business. But despite these costs rise and their intentions of still raising prices somewhat, it doesn't look like they're able to anymore fully pass on the price increases, especially for things like foods, but even things like dog toys. And so it's no surprise, in my opinion, that now you're potentially seeing a risk that pricing or rather margins might be getting squeezed at some of the pet stores. We saw uh, PetSmart and Petco, uh, or actually it was Petco, uh, was, uh, was the earnings call that I looked at. The earnings call Petco was telling us, hey, look, we think we still have the ability to essentially raise prices here in Q1, Q2, but we don't think we're going to have much ability left. So they're starting to see the end of the ability to pass on higher costs to their customers. And so at the same time, having Colgate Palmwall uh, Olive now trying to divest their pet business and focus on what they consider as growing faster, the oral and skincare business, and trying to prune off the pet food industry or just sort of the pet unit in general, uh, is to me uh, another sign that uh, a, a lot of businesses that are facing higher costs are actually losing the ability to pass on all of those costs to their customers. And so to me, that's actually positive inflation impetus, but we wanna pay attention to that. Another thing to pay attention to uh, is, uh, well, uh, actually this is more of a, a statement. Uh, some folks were asking me about uh, the, um, the idea that house hack might be sort of the uh, Robin Hood of real estate. I think maybe a, a, a good way to think about it would be sort of a combination of like the Vanguard and Robin Hood. Sort of what, what Robin Hood did for the retail community for housing is something that we think house hack can do for the vast majority of people who don't have access to homeowner equity, uh, but then also doing it in a way uh, that that uh, is, is almost Vanguard-esque, uh, that uh, makes it easy, uh, low to no cost in, in, in many cases to do exactly that. And so we're really excited about those uh, potentials. Uh, so those are things uh, that hopefully add a little bit more clarity. I, I'm really focused on making sure that people who don't have access to building wealth through real estate can do so with what Househack will end up providing, right? Househack isn't this company that's, uh, you know, solely focused on trying to buy real estate and then, uh, you know, jack up rents and try to gentrify areas or make housing unaffordable. It's actually designed to give the vast majority of people access uh, to to investing in real estate who don't have it today. So it's actually completely the opposite of that. I've got to work on that messaging because. 
My last house hack update, I wasn't exactly clear about that messaging. And so I wanna be clear that house hack isn't, isn't like a, you know, a kind of company that's trying to go around and gentrify <laughs> areas or, 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 you know, jack up rents. It's actually designed to provide high quality housing while at the same time making sure people who do not have the ability to invest in real estate end up getting the ability to invest in real estate. Much the same way that Vanguard and Robinhood gave tools to the disenfranchised when it came to trading or investing in stocks. We think we can do exactly that in real estate and we've got a pretty good plan for that. Uh, of course, learn more details by going to househack.com for that. So hopefully that's a, that's a little bit of insight, but I, I wanna be very clear because some folks were uh, you know, a little confused. They're like, wait a minute, you're talking about how profitable house hack could be based on your projections, but does that mean you just wanna make housing more unaffordable? And no, like you can have a company that actually can be substantially profitable with a lot of cash flow without actually with actually contributing towards people's ability to, to have access to uh, housing wealth and housing equality rather than inequality. Uh, that's that's a big fan or a big goal of mine. Uh, so that'll all be incorporated into House Hack. And I actually think you could do it in a win-win manner where basically the company can win, employees can win, renters and tenants can win, and people who want to invest in real estate can win. So in other words, win, 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 win. We, we, we think what we're doing, everybody can win from what we're doing. So we're really excited about that. Okay, now we've got to talk about Rivian. Rivian posted some numbers yesterday, so we've got some talking to do about Rivian. All right, stand by for Rivian. Two seconds. Well, Rivian posted some numbers, and while things are getting slightly better, let's just put it this way, things are only getting slightly better. They are still burning cash hand over a fist. Their goal is now to produce 50,000 electric vehicles in a year. They had a goal of 25,000 vehicles. They did slightly miss that goal coming in at just over 24,000 vehicles. I mean, that's not bad, okay? I don't want to take that away from them. Uh, obviously, they manufacture pickups, SUVs, Amazon vehicles. They mainly blame supply chains as a limiting factor in terms of why uh, they are not able to produce as many vehicles. This comes at the same time as they stop disclosing the number of net new pre-orders from customers. That number did stand at about 114,000 as of early November. I actually was one of those people who pre-ordered a Rivian, but now I'm not taking delivery of a Rivian because I'm spending too much money on investing in my businesses. That's okay, I don't need more cars. I think I put six or 7,000 miles on my car in the last 18 months that I've had the darn thing. Uh, so anyway, regarding Rivian, they, uh, they uh, when, when it comes to some of their numbers, I think it's, it's just worth going straight to the numbers and seeing what we're facing because eh, you know, some of the numbers, Okay, getting slightly better, but again, we're gonna wanna pay attention to what is this gonna mean long-term for the business over at Rivian? Is Rivian the kind of business that you want to invest in? Now, I've been pretty critical of Rivian, not just here on YouTube, but also on Twitter. At one point, I was shorting Rivian. I'm not shorting Rivian right now. I just wanna be very transparent about that. Uh, but I do wanna provide perspective because I do think there are some red flags that if you're an investor in Rivian, you wanna, be a pay uh, you wanna pay attention to. If you're not an investor in Rivian, uh, then at least uh, explore some of the things that we're talking about to understand some red flags that you want to pay attention to. So let's jump into, uh, oh, okay, all right, well, the darn iPad's gonna be a little funky with the way it displays this again, but that's okay. So um, what do we have here? We've got the Rivian Q4 shareholder letter, and uh, some of the things to pay attention to is their costs of revenue uh, increased 
only about 14.4% quarter over quarter. Now their revenue increase, increased about 23%. That means they're actually expanding their gross margin, uh, which is good. It, in other words, means they're losing less money. Remember this, uh, back in, uh, we were, let's see here, last quarter, uh, Rivian was spending about $2.71 just to get a dollar of revenue. So think about that for a moment. This is not a net income calculation. This has nothing to do with your operating expenses or your advertising or anything. It's literally just to say that Rivian spent $2.71 to be able to get uh, $1 of revenue. That's not ideal, right? Obviously that's not ideal because it means you're spending a lot of money to be able to get less money. Not ideal, right? There we go, iPad problem fixed. So what do we have uh, when we keep going or, or look at uh, this quarter's numbers? We see that that loss uh, has fallen. Now we're only looking at about $2.51 lost for every dollar of gross profit they're making. Their net income is even worse. So, you know, obviously the net income is, is a problem. They're losing a lot of money, They're losing about $1.73 billion. Uh, but that's okay. Let's ignore that for a moment. And at least what we're seeing is they're trending towards more profitability, but you've got a long way to go. A lot of people get upset at me because they think, oh, I only care about Tesla. Uh, and what they do is they say, hey, well, Tesla in the early days lost money as well. But if you actually go back to 2014, remove any kind of vehicle tax credits that Tesla got, Tesla was still profitable on a gross margin basis. You could go all the way back to 2014 and Tesla, when Tesla produced about 7,700 vehicles. And what you ended up finding was, oh wow, Tesla was profitable in 2014 on a gross profit basis. They were making about uh, 20 bucks for every $100 of revenue with 7,700 vehicles produced without tax credits. So think about that really clearly for a moment. Without tax credits, Tesla managed to make 20 bucks on 8,000 vehicles, about 8,000 vehicles on $100 spent. So I think the easiest way to visualize that is like this, uh, or rather $100 of revenue equaled $20 gross profit for Tesla in 2014 with about 8K vehicles, right? No credits, that's without credits. It was even better without credits. Today, you have Rivian, $100 of revenue equals uh, $251 of gross loss, gross loss. Okay, so we're, we're nowhere even close to profitable margin here uh, at about the same vehicles produced, right? So that's your red flag. That's what you're running against here is, now the Rivian is really uh, beautiful, I have to say. Uh, I was just in a Rivian. I went to Redding, California. The realtor was amazing. He showed me his Rivian. I drove in his Rivian. The thing is beautiful, but it, it, it looks like the warthog of cars. It's absolutely gorgeous. Like you look at the car and you're like, please be profitable because I want more Rivians, right? But the problem is it's not. It's not anywhere near close to profitable. And you could see that in the numbers here. Now, I want to show you where they're cutting, but something that I want to remind you when we talk about cutting is the one thing that's not getting cut are the prices and the courses in building your wealth. Today is the last day we're keeping the prices at this flash sale level in honor of Investor Day. We're raising the prices after today in honor of Investor Day. Prices are going up. So if you want to get the best price guaranteed going forward, uh, and this is the same promise we have for people who've bought the course in the past. You can always email us uh, if, if you think there's, a, there, there's an issue, but this is the best price you're gonna get going forward. 
send us an email at kevin at mekevin.com if you want to bundle up. But uh, today we will, after today, we will be raising the prices on the courses. So if you want to get lifetime access on those for building your wealth in stocks or real estate or my perspective on entrepreneurship, being an employee, real estate agents, YouTube, whatever, check out those courses linked down below. You get lifetime access to any of them, including the course member live streams. Okay, so uh, where they are cutting here though is they're cutting OPEX. Quarter over quarter, they cut OPEX 7.2%. Year over year, they over halved OPEX. So they're really trying. They're cutting down their research and development. They've almost halved their research and development year over year. They're cutting down their SG&A, also almost halving that year over year. So they're trying, but that cost of goods uh, cost decline is not something I would touch with a 10-foot pole right now. It's very, very scary. Uh, I want to see them actually get close to break even. Now, they say in their earnings call, oh, don't worry. We think we're going to be gross margin profitable by uh, 2024. I personally don't believe that. This is their, uh, their earnings call, and I want to say the highlight uh, moment was... Okay, they're talking about bringing on their second shift. Oh yeah, over here. They've got a goal of being gross margin profitable in 2024. I personally highly doubt they can pull that off. Hey, maybe their second shift is going to bring them closer, right? Maybe they can only spend $100 for every $100 of gross profit they bring in, right? That would put them at basically zero margin. That would be fantastic. But right now, they're spending $251 per $100 of revenue on a gross margin basis. That's horrible. It's really, really bad. Now, they have these grandiose visions, and this is where I have a big concern for Rivian, okay? Watch this. So not only do they have these visions of being able to get to profitability, gross margin profitability in 2024, 2025, uh, they think they can uh, they can fund themselves through 2025. So they're basically trying to say, hey, look, we're not planning on diluting investors. We think we can get to 2025 profitability without having to dilute investors more. <coughs> That's great. I don't believe it. I'm coughing because I'm allergic to bullshit. But, you know, hey, maybe they can pull it off. But this sounds crazy. They say they see a clear path to 25% gross margin. Like they, in other words, by burning $251 per quarter right now, only down from $271 of burn on a gross margin basis per $100 of revenue. They think from that, they can go to a profitable $25 per $100 of revenue on a gross margin basis. That's a Tesla kind of target. They think they can achieve that. Hey, if they can fantastic. But you want to see how they plan to achieve that? And this is where I literally just wrote, what the F, okay? They think that they're going to increase their margin by reducing their costs of goods sold per vehicle made. Okay, hopefully, maybe your second shift will help you with that because right now it's disgusting where you are. I mean, if you sell a car for $80,000, you're spending over $160,000, $170,000 to get that revenue. I mean, think about it. All you have to do is multiply it by 2.5. So their average vehicle selling price is about $80,000. or $80, Holy smokes. That means right now it costs them $200,000 to get an $80,000 car off the line. That's insane. That's actually an even easier way to put it. It costs Rivian $200,000 to make an about $80,000 uh, average selling price vehicle right now. Now I can tell you the exact average selling price. I wrote it down and that was the Q3. I believe I wrote it right here. $82,300 is the current average selling price. So the average selling price right now is $82,300. Uh, and 
uh, they think they can make their vehicles profitable. So somehow bring that gross cost down from $200,000 a vehicle to $82,300. But actually not just that, they think they can get their costs to 25%, right? Or, or 75%. So they think they can actually get to their goal, which is a fair goal to have, is $61,725 of cost for an $82,300 vehicle. But this is where the WTF moment is for Rivian, okay? You ready for this? They think they can actually improve on their average selling price per vehicle. They're already selling the cars for $82,300. And they think they can raise the prices even more? And there's, I mean, what do you wanna sell them? Like lucid pricing or something like that and start selling them for like $200,000 a car? It's insane. I don't know. I, I don't see it. It seems it seems ludicrous to me. That's Q3 there. Here's Q4. Uh, what what do we have on actual cash flow? They're burning uh, their cash free cash flow right now is a negative 4.4 billion dollars. Uh, but they do have cash. You know you know where they got this cash from, folks? From you. If you were a retail investor, they should be sending you a thank you card because they built up an 18 billion dollar cash pile. And in fairness. Hey, oh, I'm sorry. That's now down to $11.5 billion. That was the 21, uh, 2021 number. Well, anyway, that's where they got the money from, right? They did a direct listing. They saved on underwriting fees and they took advantage of retail momentum thinking that this was the next Tesla. And because people thought this was the next Tesla, they threw money hand over fist at the stock, giving the company now what's $11.5 billion in cash left. They've got some inventory. They've got plant property and equipment. Fine. That's great. We've got some payables over here of only about $2 billion. They've got maybe a, a, you know, some long-term debt over here. So call it $3 billion. They've got free and available cash. I would call it free cash of somewhere around $8 billion. That's fantastic. That should give them about 1.75-ish years before needing to raise money, which is roughly 2025. That's when they actually think they can be gross profitable. That's fantastic. You know, if all things go great, Maybe they can pull it off. But let me just say, you know, going from, uh, where's that earnings call? Going from, uh, you know, spending $200,000 on a car that costs $82,300. I don't know, man. Good luck. That's all I'm saying. Good luck, Rivian. Uh, you know, I like, and, and if I were an investor, those are the things I'd be paying attention to. Again, maybe with the second shift, they can get that cost substantially down. Maybe, maybe we'll only spend... $150,000 a vehicle. It's still a far cry from $82,300. I don't know how much really the second shift is going to make a difference. I get it. Get more vehicles off the line. It should. Is it going to double production? Maybe. I mean, at, at these numbers, if you were able to double production, in theory, you could get the cost per vehicle down to $100,000. So if you have a perfect scale, right? So in other words, you open up a second shift and you perfectly double production, you're still going to have an increase of COGS, right? Because you have material costs and labor costs that go into it. But let's just say they could double production without doubling costs. Well, okay, then you bring the cost per vehicle down to 100 grand. So you're still losing 20 grand on a gross margin basis per vehicle. But you're not going to be able to double it that way because you're going to have increased labor and, and, and uh, material costs. So even though you're manufacturing maybe twice as many cars, you're not going to get twice the benefit. So you're still going to be losing 120, to $150,000 per, or spending 130 to $150,000 per $80,000 vehicle. It still does not make sense. The numbers are very, very bad. 
And, and all you have to do is go look at Teslas in 2014 uh, and when they were manufacturing 8,000 vehicles, and they're not that bad. These numbers are, are a company that looks like it potentially will never be profitable. Uh, and that's scary. They'll probably have to go bankrupt or get acquired by someone else or raise their prices substantially for their vehicles. I don't see that happening. If they can't raise the prices for the vehicle substantially, then they're potentially on the course of bankruptcy. Or they just start putting less expensive stuff in the cars. But then at that point, if they start cheaping, cheapening out on the car, which is beautiful right now, absolutely beautiful, some of the stuff they put in the car right now, gorgeous. If they start cheaping out on it, well, then why would you buy a Rivian over a Tesla, which Tesla has the autonomy, which Rivian doesn't? You know, Rivian has like adaptive cruise control. It, it makes no sense to me. I don't know. You know, maybe maybe I'm just like passionately concerned. We'll call it that. I'm like the doctor who's, you know, yelling at somebody who has a terrible diet, trying to say, would you just eat some salty nuts, please? Like get some good fats in you. I, I, that's just what I feel like right now. Yeah, I'm not saying they can't survive off, you know, a, a ribeye and, and a cheesy hamburgers and prime rib dips but they're probably gonna die of a heart attack. You know, is there a chance they won't? Sure, but they're playing with fire. That's all I'm saying about Rivian, okay? I Look, beautiful car. I just wanna be so crystal clear because I'm not trying to offend Rivian owners. In fact, you know what? I think if you buy a Rivian, you are getting a $200,000 car for 80 grand. That's the way to look at it. You win if you're the customer at Rivian. Unless, of course, there are a bunch of service issues that come up in the future. But assuming that's not an issue, you win if you're a Rivian customer because you are basically robbing Rivian. You are getting an 80 grand car or a $200,000 car basically for, for, you know, 80 grand. <laughs> you win. All right. Now we got to talk about the Federal Reserve and the potential for a reverse wage price spiral. Yeah. And what did the Fed just say? Because the Fed just said something totally new, and it's really interesting. In fact, this, this new Fed president the, of the uh, Fed Bank of Chicago, Mr. Goolsby. Yes, his name is Goolsby. Anyway, the new Fed Bank president, Goolsby, uh, we'll talk about his comments first, and then I want to talk about the reverse wage price spiral. So this is a really important segment on the Fed. You want to get caught up on the Fed's thinking, okay? This is going to be what we want to talk about. Uh, it is worth noting that uh, the Fed's terminal rate, or in other words, the market's expectation of how high the terminal rate for the Federal Reserve will go has moved substan uh, substantially to the upside. We were sitting at about 4.9% for most of the fourth quarter of last year. That, uh, and even into January, that puts us at 4.9% as a terminal rate. And we were pricing in rate cuts for 2023. Now we are no longer pricing in rate cuts. And the terminal rate has been creeping up almost on a daily basis. Right now, the terminal rate is sitting at about 5.42%. That's the current expectation. That's actually up from yesterday, where the terminal rate was sitting at 5.4%. So it's moved up even more. Okay, so pay attention to that. But what does Mr. Goolsby have to say, who just took office? Man, I, I like take a shot every time I say Goolsby. But anyway, maybe don't. I mean, shot of coffee, you know, something that, you, or water. There we go. Okay, but anyway, so uh, Goolsby says that he is now tempted 
uh, or I'm sorry, the Fed used to be tempted to lean on the instant reaction of the stock market to see how they should react uh, to to their communications and their, their policy. In other words, like when they say something, is the stock market going down? Okay, great. We're accomplishing work over here. That's kind of what they're saying. How is the bond market reacting, right? But listen to this. Goolsby just said something totally new. And then we're going to talk about the reverse wage price, bro, which is totally new. Goolsby says, it is a danger and a mistake for policymakers to rely too heavily on market reactions. Instead, we need to supplement traditional data with observations from the real economy. This is especially true when things are strange and up in the air as they have been through much of the pandemic. Holy smokes. Take a pause there for a moment. That is a flippy floppy doodly do. Okay. First, you have most of the people at the Fed going, hey, we want financial conditions to tighten. We're trying to massage the market to react a certain way. We're trying to move down housing and stocks or whatever to make the wealth effect have an impact on demand. We can only affect the demand side of the equation. We don't know what the lags are. Maybe the lags are a lot shorter than they used to be. And if the lags are shorter than they used to be, then we have to keep tightening. And so what's Goolsby saying? Yes, first of all, he is reminding you that the flash sale expires today and you get the best price guaranteed going forward that you can get by emailing me at kevinmbkevin.com if you want to bundle up or just go to the link down below and check out the courses on building your wealth, whether it's the zero to millionaire, real estate investing, stocks and psychology of money, YouTube, real estate agent sales, entrepreneur, uh, the property management course or the employee uh, elite hustlers group where you could learn how to build your wealth and make more money as, as an employee or entrepreneur. They all come with course member uh, live stream for life and uh, promised updates for the course to make sure everything stays relevant. Anyway, that expires uh, today in honor of Tesla Investor Day. But what is cool, what does this really mean? What this means is the Fed is trying to be more aware of, hey, wait a minute, this is very similar to what Mester said, by the way, wait a minute, maybe we should wait to see if all these lags come through because maybe our actions on the market are actually starting to have more of an effect than we think. Now that's really interesting. And how does that relate to potentially now what's being called the reverse wage price spiral? Oh, well, it relates hugely and you're gonna love this. So watch this. The wage price spiral is when you have prices rise and then employees demand more payment so they can afford higher prices. Now, when they afford higher prices, the cost of doing business goes up, so companies want to raise prices. Well, then employees demand more wage raises. Okay, well, that's a problem. That's a wage price spiral. But what could potentially be a reverse wage price spiral that the Fed is starting to pay attention to? Listen to this. If companies can't raise prices anymore because all of a sudden people just won't buy anymore, that is, all of a sudden, demand is becoming elastic, which means as prices go up, people spend less money, right? And where are you seeing that? Well, you're seeing it at Lyft, Uber, Starbucks, Chipotle. Uh, where else are you seeing it? Tyson Foods. You think chicken prices are inelastic? People are going to keep buying chicken? Wrong. Read the Tyson Foods earnings call. Not inelastic anymore. Price go up, people stop buying. What do the companies have to do then? Start discounting. So what does that create? It actually lowers, and we're seeing this in the survey data as well, 
individual expectations of inflation. Now, this is not to be confused with the bond market's expectation of inflation. It has to do with surveyed expectations of inflation by actual laborers. So when you look at the University of Michigan, what do they say? They say that inflation expectations are not only stable, but they're falling. And so what's actually happening is you have employees who are starting to realize, well, first of all, you have employers who are realizing we are out of price hikes. Like the inflation is here and it's here to stay, but we're out of price hikes. Like the inflation that has occurred has occurred, but we, we can't hike anymore. Like we are taking it in the margin and employees are starting to realize, crap, businesses are starting to take it in the margin. Maybe my job isn't safe because layoffs might occur. After all, we did just go from doing the same damn job before the pandemic at 10 bucks an hour to now getting paid 15 or 16 or 17 or $18 per hour for the same work. Okay, so if prices are stable, and employees are realizing, crap, I might get laid off. I, I really want to make sure I keep making this money because it's so much better than what we were getting before the pandemic. Maybe we could actually start seeing a paradoxical reverse wage price spiral. In fact, consider this. The Phillips curve tells you that when the unemployment rate goes down, wage inflation goes up. But what's actually happening? The unemployment rate has just fallen to a 50-year low. And what's happening with wage growth? Oh, damn, it's starting to fall. I'll pull up a picture of it. I'll show you. Wage growth actually starting to fall. It's on my phone over here, so it's going to take a little moment to get it here. But anyway, the point is, wage growth is falling while unemployment is at these record lows, suggesting that we could potentially be, with these extremely anchored and falling personal laboring inflation expectations, we could actually be in a situation where, oh man, maybe, just maybe, we face a reverse wage price spiral not a real wage price spiral to the upside. Now, this is where a lot of economists surveyed by Bloomberg are actually taking this seriously and they're suggesting that there's been real damage to the job market. And now this reverse price spiral, wage price spiral is gaining attention. And now they say, uh, this is not universally accepted, but we're also starting to see that in company earnings reports and earnings calls. Now that's interesting to me. So what I decided to do is look at some recent earnings. Let me just show you quickly the chart that I promised you. It's on screen uh, right here. You can see this is the slowing wage growth chart. It uh, just basically shows you the employment cost index, how it's starting to fall. Fantastic. While at the same time as employment is rising, is, is, uh, unemployment is falling. This is not to say you don't want to see people make more money, okay? I always get those stupid comments and it's just like economically illiterate. People don't realize that if wages keep going up forever, uh, that, uh, at, at the rates that they are, the acceleration, the first derivative, I already lost like 90% of people by saying first derivative. But anyway, when the rate of change keeps going up, what happens? Oh crap, you're gonna end up walking into a massive depression. You're gonna have a lot more pain than if wages just grow at a, at a stable rate. Anyway, so what's really important uh, is looking at earnings calls. So what did I do? Well, obviously this is just what I do on a daily basis. Uh, uh, it sounds really fun, doesn't it? But anyway, I look at earnings calls. And one that I wanted to look at was um, uh, Ross. So look at Ross stores. They just reported earnings. This earnings call is from yesterday. What did they say yesterday? Wage costs have risen, but are growing at a slower rate than they did during the pandemic. Okay, wait a minute. Put this data together, okay? I really want you to put this data together for a moment. The Fed is saying, let's look at what the real economy is doing, AKA people. What's actually happening on the ground, not just markets. That's really good because it means we maybe don't have to get Paul Volcker, especially if we're seeing a reverse wage price spiral. 
We expect from a wage perspective that it will be ongoing pressure on their margins. And this is where you have to read between the lines. What they're trying to do is they're trying to defend their margins. And so even though wages have gone up, what we're looking for is any sign that wage growth is expanding at a higher rate. But if it's just up and stable or up and growing at a slow, stable rate, that's not a concern. The Fed doesn't have to rug pull us then like Paul Volcker gave it to us dirty. We expect from a wage perspective that it will be ongoing pressure, but we're finding some ways to be more efficient with the business in offsetting those costs. Wait a minute. That is a substantial U-turn from last year. Last year it was wages just went up a ton because of the pandemic. We're going to raise prices because we think we got big PP, big pricing power. Well, what's happening now? Yeah, you know, wages are up, uh, so um, we're going to try to be more efficient. Yeah. But, but think about that. Hold that thought for a moment, okay? Because I went to the AutoZone, and this was really incredible. Hold on. I want to I wanna just put, where, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? One of them. Auto. Can I find it? Can I find it? Oh, God. AutoZone's mentioned on every page. Of course it is. Uh, basically, AutoZone, uh, and it could have been Target. I looked at Target, Ross, and this one. And we'll go through this in a little bit more detail. We'll find it. But anyway, we'll find this in a moment. Somewhere in these earnings calls, and I noted it, so we'll find it. It should be easy to find. But anyway, they start talking about not only trying to become more efficient with the business, but actually investing in autonomous more. So in other words, they're realizing, yeah, look, you know, wages have gone up. So we're just going to maybe try to replace jobs with more autonomy. That's the risk factor of wages keep going up. Like the politically or, or the economically illiterate who, who just want to go, this dang wages shouldn't go up anymore, are like missing the point. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we don't want to see evidence of a wage price spiral coming because that's bad. But what we're actually seeing is evidence of a reverse wage price spiral, which means the Fed could honestly just take its time. We don't have to get Paul Volcker. Yes, that means higher rates for longer. Yes, that means more of a shitty real estate environment. Yes, that means you have to be more patient with buying real estate. But that might be an opportunity because it means more opportunity to get affordable housing, right? Anyway. We've seen wage price increases in uh, in our stores and distribution centers. And while that's easing, we have not been fully able to mitigate those increases. Listen to what they're saying. Wages went up. Now they're not going up as, in, as much anymore, but we're taking it in the margin. This is what I've been saying for months on the channel here. And I'm just now providing you, uh, I mean, I regularly try to provide you evidence because that's why I think you come to my channel is for that sort of unique perspective that I don't think you really get anywhere else. I'm patting myself on the back here, okay? I am wearing your Christmas sweater March 1st after all. But anyway, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is, look at this. Uh, and they're basically telling you like, but we can't figure it out. Like we can't get, uh, we, we, like we can't figure out how to be more efficient at these higher costs. So in other words, our margin's going down. And look at this, you'll see in our capital spend this year, we have about 810 million included in that. One of our biggest increases are technology investments that we're making. And some examples of that would be automation in our distribution centers. In other words, companies are being forced to innovate because they're taking it in the margin. They can't raise prices anymore. They say at this point, wage increases are not driven by pricing power of employees. Guess what the wages are being actually driven by? But overall, it's really driven at this point by those minimum wage increases, those darn minimum wage increases. So in other words, the only place you're really actually still seeing labor pricing power is not where laborers actually have pricing power. It's actually where the government is forcing more inflation. This is a bad time for minimum wage increases, but you know what, again, I'm not saying I don't want people to make more money. I'm just saying in an inflationary time, government always seems to come around and F crap up even more. 
Okay. Anyway, so what do we have over here? So this is AutoZone. We're continuing to experience substantially higher wage inflation than at the higher uh, than than historically in the mid single digits. While staffing environment is substantially improved versus this time last year, we don't envision wage inflation abating soon, and there continues to be regulatory and market pressures. Okay, so listen to that for a moment. What they're saying is, look, wages went up a lot. Regulatory pressures is another way of saying, look, minimum wage keeps pushing wages up, and we can't figure out how to pass on these margins at AutoZone either, and that's a problem. Now listen to this. Uh, and, and again, I'm not saying we're going to go to zero uh, pricing power for wages uh, or, or rather zero inflation for wages. Wages are still moving up, right? Right now we're moving up at an annualized rate of about 46 to 5.2%. So it's still above pre-pandemic levels, but it's starting to plummet. That pricing power is going away. So what do we have over here? To be clear, we do not believe inflation is going away, especially wage inflation, but I do expect it to slow a bit as the economy slows. That's good. Okay. So not as uh, sort of bullish on inflation going away as Ross, but still at AutoZone letting us know like, hey, look, we're not spiraling out of control, right? So Ross is like, we're basically reverse wage price spiraling. That's what they're saying. They're like, we can't pass on these costs. Minimum wages are screwing us going up. We're taking it in the margin. We're going to invest in uh, uh, in, in uh, automation to get rid of workers as much as we can. And here's AutoZone saying, hey, look, yeah, it's slowing down. Like the rate of increase is definitely slowing down. And that aligns with the chart that we just showed as well. Uh, but this is interesting. They say here that some of the parts they sell have low price elasticity because uh, purchases are driven by a failure or routine maintenance. That's great. They're trying to talk up their ability to maintain pricing power, right? Unfortunately, that's not what they mention elsewhere on their earnings call. So they talk specifically about certain like needs parts. Like I'm going to make a guess here. If you need new spark plugs or glow plugs, you're going to buy them because you need them to get your car to keep going, right? Kind of like you need a medicine. If you're dying of an allergic reaction, you will pay for the EpiPen, even if it's 50% more expensive. If you're thirsty in the desert of with, without water, you will pay $100 for a bottle of water. It doesn't matter, right? Like you need it. Uh, so anyway, what do you have over here? Uh, I think it's important for you all to understand we saw enormous spikes in freight costs. We did not pass all of those costs along. Of course not, because you don't have that big of a PP. Nobody does. Those were really expensive. Now, fortunately, those costs have come down. As we look forward, I think you've got to separate the gross margin piece from the labor piece. We're going to continue to see elevated wage growth, elevated compared to pre-pandemic. We want to pay attention to not just things that say everything's going down. Okay, obviously, AutoZone says we still see some uh, wage growth. We want to pay attention to it. But listen to how he describes it. We've seen it now probably for five years. So in other words, what they're saying here is this is not a unique wage price spiral that's continuing to happen. They're saying, look, you know, minimum wages basically have been rising for about the last five years. And so that wage growth is going to continue to affect our margin. And we're not going to be able to pass on all of those costs. See, take a look at this. They literally tell you that. We will be mindful of labor costs, but generally that's not a big driver of what we do with pricing to customers. We need What we need to do is make sure we're finding ways to be as efficient as possible. So even the company that's bitching about labor costs going up over the last five years and that they're still trending up because of minimum wage increases is telling you, yeah, we can't really pass on those prices. You know, it just, it sucks. We're just taking it in the margin. So even one that's like, 
potentially giving you bad news on inflation is actually telling you, no, we, we, we can't keep raising prices. In fact, we're not going to. And in fact, most of this is just driven by minimum wage increases, which is basically the government forcing more inflation at the worst possible time in an inflationary crisis. Again, the government just screwing up everything. Uh, so over here, they talk a little bit about uh, this as well. They talk about how the cost of businesses, uh, doing business is going up structurally. So things are basically materially getting more expensive. They're trying to find ways to be more efficient. But listen to this. This is basically telling you they can't innovate. Like AutoZone can't figure it out. Listen to what they say. We're looking for ways to be more creative and more efficient, but we can't. We can't drive that level of efficiency in a 43-year-old business without some kind of structural change. We're looking for it, but we haven't identified it at, at this point. How interesting. So AutoZone is literally telling you, yeah, dude, we don't know how to pass on these higher like minimum wages, so we're just gonna have to take it on the margin, and we can't automate it away like other businesses can. We're trying to, but we can't figure it out. We can't innovate. You know what the writing on the wall here is? AutoZone stock has done, actually, I think pretty decently over the last year because it's kind of been considered a staple. But you know what AutoZone here is telling you, right? This is a leading indicator that the writing is on the wall that they could go bankrupt in the future. Now, that sounds insane, okay? The stock is up 36% over the last year. The stock has massively outperformed because it's being considered a staple, right? So people are like, oh my gosh, we're going into recession. Well, people are still going to buy stuff at AutoZone, right? Yeah, fantastic. That's what, they're, that's what they're saying. But wait a second, wait a second. They're giving you a heads up here. Yeah, we're not going to be able to innovate our way out of this. We, we can't figure it out. And in other words, unless they can figure it out, they're going to continue to take you to the margin. And in the future, that could mean getting replaced by a company like Amazon, which could basically supplement uh, a product, uh, like delivering a retail product with their web services business, right? Amazon, dude, Amazon is not profitable. People are like, oh, I'm buying stuff on Amazon. They gotta be profitable, right? They're losing money hand over fist on their business. The way they rig their their uh, uh, revenue and income statement to show the expenses is they show you the revenue that they get from merchandise, but their cost of goods sold is like a bundled jumble of a bunch of different of their businesses because they don't wanna show you how blatantly they're losing money on doing retail work because they're losing money hand over fist on the thing that makes Amazon Amazon. So they try to make money on web services to offset that. But what does AutoZone have? Is Amazon gonna get into the web services business to offset their money losing retail business? Now, don't get me wrong, they're not losing money right now. Their margins are just going down, right? But it's, it's interesting to me that you're actually seeing in uh, earnings calls throughout this industry, uh, and you can even go to, uh, and I've mentioned these a million times before, Uber, Lyft, uh, Chipotle, Starbucks, read the reports, read the earnings calls, what they're saying about labor. And when you do that, you realize there's no wage price spiral. We are not facing a wage price spiral. The only leftover wage inflation we're seeing is because politicians are being numb nuts and, and, and are basically forcing prices up in the worst time to do that. It's like sending, it would be as stupid as sending inflationary stimulus checks when inflation is 8%. Oh wait, that's exactly what California did. But then again, what do you expect? It's California. So that's really important to pay attention to. The wage price spiral, it, it, it ain't happening. It's not, it's not visible, uh, which is very good. And we hope it continues to be visible. And to me as an investor, the Federal Reserve telling you we're looking at the real economic data, not just what the market's saying, but we're looking at the real economic data is basically their way of saying, look, you know what? We, we need to be cognizant of getting too aggressive here 
And what are we gonna do? Well, in my opinion, what they're telling us point blank is we're just gonna do 25 BP hikes. There's no rush. We're just gonna take our time. We're not gonna, no cut, you know? So, so ignore this idea of cutting. No cuts, that's fine. But we're gonna take our time. We'll go 25 BP. Maybe we'll pause at some point here at higher rates. But right now the real economy is saying we're starting to see the effects and we're not seeing a wage price spiral, which means no Paul Volcker, which means if you were an investor in the stock market, I go back and reiterate my thesis, which I have reiterated since December, that we are in the greatest Nike swoosh recovery you could potentially invest in, in my opinion. I think investments today, while they will be going through insane volatility, are relatively insulated from another leg to the downside. Unless, of course, we get like horrible inflation news next month, or actually this month now here in March. You know, we get bad labor news on March 10th. We get bad CPI report on March 14th. Uh, that then reiterates the inflationary impetus that we saw in January. But then again, even the Fed is starting to talk away the noise of some of these reports because we're at such a unique time. As long as we don't have a spiral of inflation, I think the market does this. A, a, Nike, a volatile Nike swoosh up, and I think it's probably we're going to look back and go, damn, you know, the last month of 2022 and, and the first half of 2023 were probably a generationally best time to ever invest. No guarantees. Yeah, I'm a licensed financial advisor. Yeah, I run an active ETF. Yeah, I have programs on building your wealth. I will give you my opinion. That's the point as well of these videos and my programs on building your wealth is I will give you my opinion and my perspective. It's not personalized advice for you. I don't know what the hell your situation is. But the perspectives I give, I think, are unique. And if you want unique perspectives and you want to invest in yourself, use the flash sale coupon. Today's the day. Tomorrow, the prices go up. So we're raising the prices on the programs because that's what we do. We continue to provide more value and then prices go up. So does that mean we're contributing to inflation? Good news is we don't get surveyed by uh, by the CPI reports. So no. <laughs> uh, okay, now let's uh, move on. Okay, hunky-dory then. What do we have next? Oh boy, there's a lot to cover. That's all right. We got coffee. Ooh, investor day. We got to talk about investor day. All righty. Stand by. Uh, five seconds. We've got to talk about Tesla Investor Day and the new preview out by Barclays. This preview just out. We got to go through what their opinion is of Master Plan 3. And I think that's really important to do because the Tesla event, the Investor Day event, actually occurs after the market closes. I mean, that's no surprise. It's no surprise that all the juicy stuff will occur after the market closes. Uh, in fact, I can give you the schedule of what we're looking at for Investor Day. At least I think I can. I have that here somewhere. Uh, but anyway, most of the activities and most of the actual announcements we expect to occur in the second half of the day. Here we go. 11 a.m. today is event check-in. All of these times are Central Standard Time. 11 a.m. is event check-in. Uh, there will be factory tours and plaid demo rides. Doesn't particularly say that there'll be any kind of demo rides for the Cybertruck, but maybe there will be. Who knows? It says plaid demo rides. Uh, that will go from 11 a.m. to 2.45 p.m. And I believe Tesla's starting to live stream at 1 p.m., but I don't actually expect anything to really occur until the keynote. 
which the keynote address is set for 3 p.m. Central Time. That's 1 p.m. California Time. The keynote literally starts the moment the market closes. <laughs> uh, so kind of interesting. Q&A will be from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. And then there will be a meet and greet between 5.30 to 7 p.m. Uh, 7, yeah, 7 p.m. So 90 minute meet and greet. Anyway, so what does Barclays say for the Investor Day preview? Well, let's take a look at that right now. So their preview reminds you that I have timed the expiration of my flash sale for today. Yeah, sometimes there are more coupons on the channel, but you know what? The price trends up over time. So if you want to guarantee the best price, and if you ever think you need a price adjustment because you didn't get the best price, just email me, kevinmekevin.com. But if you want to get guaranteed the best price, guaranteed, uh, you buy today. Because if the prices go up over the time, you want to lock in that lifetime access. Even if you're not ready to take the courses yet on zero to millionaire real estate investing, you're like, I'm not going to buy a house until six months from now. You know, I'll learn it. You may as well lock it in now because you'll end up saving money. A lot of money. Same thing for the Stocks and Psychology of Money Group or any of the other programs I'm building growth. Today is a flash sale, and that means prices go up tomorrow. Again, you get lifetime access to not only new lectures that are added, I keep them updated, course member live streams. If you join the Elite Hustler group, we do a Saturday sort of mastermind live stream together every uh, day. That's What's nice about that every Saturday is it's a smaller group. Course member live stream, though, is the perfect size group because we have plenty of time to answer questions, everyone's questions, uh, mostly everyone's questions, and do fun, uh, fundamental analysis together. We do those right after the morning uh, public live streams. Anyway, Investor Day Preview, Master Plan 3, Grand Scale. Okay, great. Let's look at some of the comments here. So as a reminder, Master Plan 1 was, number one, build a sports car. Number two, use that money to build an affordable car. Number three, use that money to build an even more affordable car. And while doing the above, provide a zero emission electric power generation option. Okay, so that has somewhat been achieved. A lot of these plans have been, quote, never fully uh, realized or have never fully materialized. But it's okay. It's sort of like you make a plan, and as long as you can trend in that direction, you're doing pretty dang well. Well, right? So master plan one, uh, pretty great. Uh, master plan two was create stunning solar roofs, and those really haven't scaled terribly well with integrated battery storage. Those are doing pretty decently. Those are ramping pretty well, uh, as well as the mega packs. Fantastic. In fact, a lot of Tesla bulls are saying, you know, we've got to start realizing the potential 50% margin that uh, that uh, that all of a sudden you end up having with um, uh, with with mega packs, and you start putting that into Tesla, uh, uh, you know, forecasts for for pr stock pricing. Oh, everything changes. Everything changes when you start putting mega packs into the Tesla analysis. Now, I personally don't like putting in mega packs into the Tesla analysis because I see it as the icing on the cake, right? I want to I want to ideally try to stay somewhat conservative with my projections. And I say somewhat conservative because I think they're already, you know, they're already on the more bullish side, right? We know that. If Tesla can manufacture 4,000 vehicle, or sorry, 4 million vehicles in 2025 at an average selling price of $47,000, I align uh, with, with a lot of the industry on this average selling price. And if anything, my number of vehicles produced is probably on the lower side for 2025. But anyway, uh, if I use this with only about a 10% take rate on FSD, uh, on uh, on uh, the number of vehicles, and then only 10% of those uh, that money being realized in 2025. So it's uh, basically uh, the point of that uh, is to say, hey, you know, we're going to take the number of, hold on, let me make sure I have this right. Uh, we have the number of vehicles, 4 million vehicles. 
we're gonna assume a 10% take rate. Oh, okay, I actually have it at a 10% take rate. The reason I did a 10% take rate rather than the current take rate of 20% or the potential forecast to take rate of 30 or 40% by 2025 is because they did come out with a monthly option to pay monthly for this. So I don't think it'll all translate down to uh, cash flow. Although a lot of people will sign up for full self-driving as part of their um, amortization for their loan, which basically means Tesla's paying for uh, getting the money up front. So I think I'm actually very conservative. Bottom line, I think I'm very conservative on a 10% take rate here. 25% margin, we know that Tesla's probably gonna go to about a 20% gross margin. Their goal is 30%. I'm just gonna go with about a 25% margin here. And I'm mostly going to leave uh, energy and services out of this. I'll have a little bit in here for uh, uh, leases, services, energy, I have about 1% uh, over here, and I have margin of energy of only 18%. Some people think you could massively 10x these numbers. You could probably have a margin of 50% here and maybe 10, uh, you know, um, 10x the energy revenue. I'm just going to call that icing on the cake as well as a higher uh, take rate for FSC. That's just icing on the cake for me. So in my opinion, as long as Tesla's growing earnings per share in excess of 30%, and we take a peg ratio of one, uh, you know, at that level of about 1.6%. Well, a peg ratio of about 1.6% would drive us to about a $500 reasonable price target for Tesla by 2025. The present value for Tesla is about $210 per share, which gets you about a compounded annual rate of return of about 34%. That's pretty substantial. Now, that's not a guarantee, right? It's still pretty substantial. Not a guarantee, of course, but it's great. It's fantastic. So uh, that sort of gives you just a catch up on this. So what does Barclays tell us here? Well, they talk about Master Plan 2, again, you know, coming out with full self-driving, being much more capable, 10x safer than manual learning. So what is this next Master Plan 3 likely to reveal? Well, Barclays believes that their Generation 3 platform is going to be what we get revealed, and it will be the basis for the quote-unquote Model 2. Now, this is really interesting because I personally don't think there's going to be an announced Model 2 unless it's specifically for the Chinese market. I actually think the Model 3 is the Model 2. I think the Model 3 is what Tesla wants to reduce its cost in by about 50%. And if they can reduce their cost on the Model 3 by 50%, then that's fantastic. Because right now, you're running at a margin of, uh, you're running at a cost of about $32,250 for the car. If they could reduce that to about $16,500 and they want to operate at a margin of 25%, well, now all of a sudden, you've got a car that probably could sell uh, for about, let's see if I divide it, that car at, at actually even a 30% margin, if 16000 represents 70%, there we go, you get a car that costs only about $23,000. So in other words, if they can reduce the cost of the Model 3 today by 50%, they could sell the Model 3 for $25,000 and actually make more profit. Phenomenal. So I actually personally think the Model 3 is the next Model 2, but ARK Invest thinks they're going to announce a new Model 2 today uh, or some kind of new model vehicle today. Uh, Barclays thinks that they're going to announce the basis for the Model 2 especially given that Tesla right now is primarily positioned for the luxury market. Uh, and they say that in order for Tesla to actually achieve that 20 million volume number that they're trying to achieve by the end of the decade, or at some point in the future, then they need to have some kind of $25,000 vehicle. Again, my take is that's already the Model 3 and just reducing the cost there. Now, they have a different opinion. They base that opinion on Elon Musk suggesting that the uh, vehicle will be smaller than the Model 3, Model Y platform, and it will shortly exceed the production uh, of all of our other vehicles combined. I think they mean surely here, surely here but, but anyway. 
Uh, Elon Musk apply, implied in the Q3 earnings call that Tesla will aim for a 50% cost of goods sold reduction. And uh, Barclays here is suggesting they think they're going to see somewhat similar of an investor day today, like what we saw at Battery Day. Battery Day is basically where they showed like pictures of, of the batteries, uh, the 4680 cells, and how they're able to increase the efficiency of these batteries while reducing costs. Now, I'm a little skeptical about how great some of these things are because the battery is bigger, right? Like, of course, a battery cell that's larger has five times more energy or six times potentially more power. It's a bigger cell, <laughs> you know? It's kind of like going from a C battery to a D battery. So I'm a little skeptical there, but I do think they'll get some kind of marginal improvements like, you know, maybe 16% more efficiency or whatever. We want to see, is today going to be a realistic path to potentially lower costs of production? Are we going to see more giga castings? Can we do the whole, you know, can we do the front, the back, and the bottom? Not just those in giga, uh, you know, via giga castings, but can we do bigger vehicles like maybe vans, like sprinter vans? Can we cast together sprinter vans from Tesla and then have full self-driving sprinter vans? I love the sprinter van, by the way. I think Tesla needs to get in that market. There really is no mommy car for Tesla, by the way. If you have two kids, best case scenario, you have a five-seat Model X or Model Y, and then you actually have some trunk space. But if you have any more than two kids or you have the seven seat option for the model uh, or even the six seat option for the model X or Y, you're screwed. Your trunk space goes down to zero. You ain't putting a stroller in. As soon as you have a third kid, you're screwed. There is no three child mommy Tesla car. You need, you need to go to a minivan. And personally, I think that sucks. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to offend minivan folks. We own a minivan and it's the most functional car we have. Uh, you know, when we got to take... Uh, the in-laws, the kids, me and Lauren, we got two kids to the airport and have all our luggage. The minivan works. But as soon as we have one other kid, we're screwed. And then we have to have a Sprinter van, which I'm really excited about. And Lauren's like, I don't know, man. I don't want to drop my kids off at a Sprinter van. I'm like, this is why we need a mommy car. Anyway, uh, like that's not a minivan. But anyway, they talk here about cost reductions coming uh, to batteries, potentially increasing scale, vertical in uh, integration, structural improvements, structural castings, manufacturing improvements, and trying to reduce manufacturing floor space by 50% for their third gen platform. Now, it's worth noting that they are looking at uh, uh, potentially announcing today the Mexico Gigafactory. That would be about three hours from Giga Texas. The Mexico Gigafactory is expected to see about $1 billion of CapEx investments soon and up to $10 billion of CapEx investments over time. We actually, actually also just got this uh, update here that in addition to potentially announcing an actual Gigafactory in Northeast Mexico, now there's an update just now coming in that Tesla is considering opening an electric battery vehicle or an electric battery plant, I'm sorry, not a vehicle plant, in Central Mexico. So not just a gigafactory in Northeast Mexico, where remember in California, we're paying like 20 bucks an hour for workers. In Texas, you're paying like 15 bucks an hour for workers. In Northeast Mexico, you're paying like $3 and 40 cents uh, per hour for labor in Northeast Mexico. Some people are like, oh my God, that's exploitation. But realize like capitalism that brings more work to those areas drives wages up in those areas. So it's actually helps those areas get wages up. Uh, but anyway, the United Auto Workers Union, by the way, in the United States is like punching the air right now. They're like, damn you, Elon Musk going to Mexico. And that's because the Inflation Reduction Act 
uh, which is important for capitalizing on that $7,500 vehicle tax credit, which you have over here and Barclays mentioned as well. Uh, it, it means that Tesla has to source its battery materials from North America and then assemble the stuff in North America. Well, look, lo and below, uh, lo, lo and behold, new Tesla Nuevo Leon plant could create up to 6,000 jobs, battery plant in central Mexico. Fantastic. So again, lower costs for Tesla. You help increase wages in Mexico. You have a substantially lower cost of doing business and you meet the benefit of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, maybe that wasn't the political intention. Maybe the political intention was to have Tesla manufacture stuff here, but instead they're not doing it in Mexico because they can. But hey, that's the politicians' problems. And that's exactly why the United Auto Workers Union is like, punching the air. Anyway, uh, here's an example of uh, what Barclays thinks for forecasts. Current uh, Model 3, uh, looking at uh, a cost of goods sold at about $27,900 minus the battery, excluding the battery. The Model 2 low-cost vehicle could have a cost of about $16,500. Boom, baby, that's exactly what I've been talking about for weeks on this channel. That in order to have a $25,000 vehicle, I mean, it's not hard to do the math. You gotta be sitting at somewhere around $16,000 for COGS. Now, Barclays actually thinks they're going to announce something like this today. Uh, now, what they do think, though, is images of the Model 2, probably not going to happen. So they think it's unlikely that there'll be images of the Model 2 because they don't want to cannibalize current sales. And that's, again, why I think it's more likely that Project Highland is the Model 2. In other words, the Model 3 is the Model 2. It's just the new Model 3 is just a cheaper version that you could sell at a lower price. Uh, you know, Project Highland vehicles in camo have been spotted, you know, covers over the front back. As far as the Model 2, we don't expect Tesla to show a vehicle at Investor Day, as this could risk cannibalizing the current demand. And lastly, we assume the Model 2 will be a different model than the 3Y platform. I personally disagree with that, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I'm willing to be wrong. I don't mind being wrong. I do think if there's a Model 2, it's going to be China. I think the Model 3 is the smallest thing you could sell in America. And, and I really took that to heart when I talked to Brett Witten from ARK Invest. Type that into YouTube. Meet Kevin, ARK Invest. I just interviewed Brett in person at Santa Monica. Beautiful, by the way. It's a little chilly, but it's beautiful. Uh, okay, we, so we talked about that plant already. Manufacturing will be a central theme of Investor Day. We expect Tesla to point to key aspects of the Austin Gigafactory as the basis for Tesla's manufacturing. Key question here is around other manufacturing expansion. Are we going to expand Fremont, Shanghai, Austin, Berlin, currently at 2 million units of e a year? How are we going to scale that to four, five, six? How is that going to uh, scale? You know, here you go. Our estimates of Tesla deliveries, they actually think that, uh, oh, uh, gosh, that's quite disappointing. But anyway, the annual delivery estimates here for 2025 are, are a very, very slow ramp by Barclays here. Look at this. This is like a trashy ramp. I mean, they're basically saying we're going to be at about 1.8 for 2023, barely grow in 24, barely grow. I mean, we're growing at like 10 to 15% over here. Like this would be pretty embarrassing if this, if, if it takes until 2030 to get to 5.5 million vehicles. We shall see. Uh, anyway, they think the Model 2 would end up having the lowest margins at around 21% with the S's and X's like the Plaid sitting around 32%, maybe the Roadster and Cybertruck up here in high margins as well. And notice they left off this, uh, the semi over here. These are some of the current uh, production uh, capacity numbers for Tesla or, or some projections that they have. 
4680 progress, the larger of when questions from investor for brand new models uh, will maybe will be talked about today. Longer dated initiatives, uh, potentially, hey, maybe we'll hear a little bit about lithium miners. Maybe we'll hear a little bit about uh, the uh, the software stack or even the uh, robot, the robot, not only RoboTaxi, but, but what about the robot? Uh, they do say they don't expect much on, in terms of financial targets. Maybe that's actually a good thing because if like Wall Street doesn't actually think that Tesla is going to be able to scale at this level, maybe that means the price targets are way too low for Tesla right now. Uh, so, you know, they do talk about Tesla having a margin edge over legacy automakers. Obviously, we already know that. We know that Tesla's lead in creating software-defined vehicles is an opportunity and key differentiating factor. Of course, we know that. Uh, Tesla EV supply chains. Maybe we'll hear a little bit about that. Uh, we acknowledge the near-term questions of further price cuts and margin normalization from lofty levels previously. Uh, that said, the underlying fundamentals combined with a valuation that appear far more reasonable compared to historic pricing. So even though Barclays is kind of skeptical on some of the forecasts of numbers produced, uh, you know, we, you know, they, they actually see Tesla as reasonably valued today. Those who remain bullish see further upside, but have pointed out that Tesla's 2030 volume opportunity is likely above our 5.5 million units, more like seven to 10 million units. And Tesla might lean into this with its significant cost advantage. So in other words, Barclays is actually already saying like, yeah, our forecasts might be a little on the low side for Tesla's production. Uh, yeah, think. Anyway, kind of interesting. And it's almost as interesting as recognizing that, hey, Tesla is now opening up their superchargers uh, to other individuals. I'm really curious to see how that uh, charging is going to uh, lead to congestion because it's going to take a while to actually see a lack of congestion, I think, uh, because Tesla is going to take billions of dollars from the government and build more chargers. But I, the, the congestion thing bothers me, although I don't even charge at the superchargers because I don't go anywhere. Uh, but where I do go is to course member live streams to provide more value to course members every single day. And you should join that using the course member flash sale today in honor of Investor Day, which is going to be the best price guaranteed going forward because prices will be going up after today. All right. Let's see what is next. All right. So now we've got to talk. Yeah, a little chat GPT stuff to talk about. Oh my lord, there's so much. Uh, and and FBI. I don't think I don't know how I'm gonna get through all this. I will try my best. That is what I shall do. <laughs> uh yeah. Alright. Alright, stand by. Uh Now we got to talk about China being super pissed off at Elon Musk allowing talk about the Wuhan lab leak theory to circulate on Twitter. Now he's getting slapped on the wrist by potentially threatening Giga Shanghai. We'll see. We'll see. But there's lots to talk about because now... It's no longer just the energy department talking about the Wuhan lab leak theory being a potential or even likely explanation, even though with low confidence, that that is where COVID came from. But folks, now the FBI is coming out saying the same. Now you might be thinking like, what does the energy department have to do and the FBI have to do with an infectious disease? Well, surprisingly, they actually have a substantial set of scientists within these departments that are dedicated to the impact of infectious diseases 
on not only their departments, but the United States as risks to uh, energy infrastructure, energy needs, energy stability, whatever it may be, hospital stability, FBI, whatever. So however we want to explain it, it's worth noting that now the FBI has come out and said the following, which just hurts potentially Elon Musk. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. What's going on with China and the idea of potentially divesting away from China. But what do we have here? The FBI is now coming out saying the FBI for some time has assessed the origins of the pandemic as, quote, most likely a potential lab leak incident in Wuhan. Holy smokes. This is actually quite interesting. This is despite the fact, and we've known this, okay? The FBI is like two years late on this. Maybe it's because the FBI knew and they just didn't want to say anything because if they said something, well, A, a certain group of politicians would be really pissed off and B, what would end up happening? Well, you'd probably get banned from Twitter because you used to get banned from Twitter if you talked about the potential that COVID originated from a lab. Now, you got the Energy Department saying so via the Wall Street Journal expose we just had on Sunday. You've got the FBI now reiterating that, yeah, this was most likely a lab leak. But listen to this. You still have four other agencies, along with the National Intelligence Panel, still judging that the pandemic was likely the result of natural transmission. And the White House National Security Spokesman, John Kirby, said on Monday that the U.S. government has not received or reached a definitive conclusion. Now, I write, I write over here Trump. Now, the reason I write over here Trump is, is not because I'm like, um, you know, I'm a Mr. MAGA over here. Absolutely not. But let's be clear. It would be very unpopular right now for the existing Democratic administration to say, oh, yeah, the lab leak is potentially true. Because what did Donald Trump say from day one? The Chinese virus. The Chinese are responsible for this. This came from a lab. Now, at the time, most people thought Trump was just being Trump. And that maybe he's right, but he's probably just being Trump. Well, now it's starting to look a little bit more like when Trump was just being Trump, he was actually right. Uh, and, and, and I know that saying Trump was right pisses off basically anybody who's on the left. That's not the intention of this. Okay, this is not to like bow down to Trump. This is just to say, of course, it would be politically unpopular for the White House to admit this. In fact, it could potentially borderline be bad for somebody like Mr. Fauci. We'll talk about that as well in just a moment. But we're going to talk about China and, and, and Tesla specifically. But anyway, China denounced uh, these comments on Wednesday saying, basically, this is a form of political manipulation of the facts. It's worth noting that Tesla's Elon Musk is now getting some backlash uh, because Chinese state media, which a lot of media in China is basically state-run, almost all of it is, Chinese state media calls out Elon Musk over coronavirus tweet. Chinese state media called out Elon Musk this week for responding to a post about the origin of the coronavirus, potentially signaling that the strained relations between Tesla CEO and the country where many of the cars are manufactured uh, could be at, at, at risk. That relationship could be at risk. 40% of Teslas are manufactured in China right now. So maybe today in Investor Day, we'll find out a little bit more about how they want to get away from China. But uh, apparently Musk is, quote, advancing the conspiracy theory about the coronavirus. Well, apparently now the Energy Department and the FBI think that conspiracy theory actually holds merit. But anyway, the U.S. right-wing and anti-China media, uh, or, or sorry, uh, that China is saying the U.S. right-wing and anti-Chinese media is hostile to China. Uh, and basically uh, China's pissed. Uh, and that they think people are trying to frame China. But let's be real, that's potentially likely now or almost certain what's actually happening. Uh, and uh, Elon Musk apparently was responding to a tweet on Twitter about a conspiracy that Anthony Fauci 
created uh, the coronavirus and that Fauci should be prosecuted. Uh, so, so I want to talk about that just briefly. And then I want to talk China because we got to talk China importantly, because there's, you know, China obviously has an impact on a lot of companies that we invest in here. So here's a tweet that says, Dr. Anthony Fauci funded gain of function research at the Wuhan lab, lied to Congress about it. And now both the FBI and department of energy have concluded that coronavirus originated at that Wuhan lab. It's a level four biosafety lab. That level four biosafety lab is actually one of the first that China has as a level four safety, a biosafety lab. And apparently their biosafety protocols just weren't good enough. And uh, yeah, well, anyway, COVID got out, but anyway, uh, Elon Musk replied to this and says he did it via a pass-through organization known as EcoHealth. Now, it's worth understanding this a little bit. First of all, technically today, technically, okay, let's let's just consider facts here for a moment. Technically today, gain-of-function research is technically not illegal. Now, it is very unpopular right now to say gain-of-function research, which is basically where you manipulate a virus to do something it couldn't otherwise do. So if that coronavirus were originally originated in bats and was able to transmit through bats, if you now screw with it and doink with it or direct its evolution, now it could potentially spread to humans. Well, that is that type of research that going, is going on, and it's not illegal. Now, technically, people like Anthony Fauci and Pfizer say, no, we don't conduct gain-of-function research. But to me, that's just like saying at Twitter, oh, uh, we don't shadow ban people. Okay, well, what did Twitter do? Twitter actually visibility filters people, okay? It's just a pseudonym phrase. What actually is happening uh, is you're seeing directed evolution happen. Directed evolution is very similar to gain-of-function research. It's probably exactly the same thing. It's just unpopular to use the phrase gain-of-function. And it is a fact that money went from the United States to that Wuhan lab in China. And if directed evolution was being conducted there, then yeah, technically the United States funded directed evolution research, which is basically the same thing of gain-of-function research. Now, you could say publicly, but you're basically just hiding the truth. No, 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 we don't do gain-of-function research. Just like you could say publicly, we don't shadow ban people. We visibility filter people. We do directed evolution. So technically, maybe Fauci could argue, no, you didn't really lie because the definition is different, but it just doesn't look good, right? And, and so anyway, this is kind of where uh, uh, Elon Musk has come out and sort of vagged on Fauci. Now, a, a lot of people say, look, hey, you know, Fauci should be in jail, but then you have to ask yourself, is, if, if gain-of-function research and directed evolution is not a crime, does he belong in jail? Well, of course, then the counter-argument is, but millions of people died from COVID. And if they contributed to the formation of, of COVID and millions of people died, is that not murder? Well, I, you know, this is where we have to look and go and say, okay, well, maybe we need laws that actually address if gain-of-function research, aka directed evolution, should be allowed. And then we have to evaluate, do, does directed evolution ever actually help us in medicine or does it only hurt us? So, like, this is all still TBD stuff. It's really easy to just pretend to be on one side and go, Fauci deserves to be in jail. And then on the other side, you got people going, no, he's a hero. Let's look at what's actually happening, okay? What's actually happening is the research that led to COVID is basically happening on a daily basis. On a daily basis, it's happening. And so we, have a, as a society, have to realize that we're being duped with what it's being called. It is actually happening. And we have to decide, are we okay with that happening?
I, I don't know. I don't know. We, we, we probably don't have all those answers yet. But anyway, this is where we kind of go into China. And, and, and potentially, if, if you know, China is very unhappy with, with Elon Musk, for example, what could that potentially mean for Giga Shanghai, right? Is it, I mean, so far already, Shanghai has potentially had its expansion limited. So I'm interested in Investor Day today. What are we going to see in terms of uh, uh, expansion plans for China? So far, the China Gigafactory had massive expansion plans that have been put on halt because of China. And this just adds more tension to what is already a lot of tension in China. It's not good for Tesla. It, you know, all this, this drama and this sort of political commentary uh, by Elon Musk, and not only that commentary, but obviously now he runs Twitter, is bad for Tesla. But I think it's obvious by now. I mean, you have to be a numbnut to, to suggest that t Elon Musk buying Twitter didn't hurt Tesla. It obviously hurt Tesla. It obviously did. Not only just in the share price declines uh, because of the amount of liquidation uh, Elon Musk had to perform, but also reputationally because you pissed off a lot of lefties. Uh, and, and, you know, righties have also been pissed off. And I'm not saying I'm one or the other. Just saying, uh, you know, China's going to be interesting. Now, remember... It's also worth noting that people are trying to dip out of China. Like people are trying to leave China. Richer people are trying to leave China. And you got manufacturing that's trying to get away from China. Because China does this crap. They try to intimidate you to basically manipulate messaging. And to manipulate messaging, they will limit your expansion plans or productive capacity in their country. That's what they do. Apple. There's a, which article is this? This is a Bloomberg article. AirPods maker Gore-Tec is one of the manufacturer, many manufacturers exploring locations beyond China, obviously as well with Apple, which today cranks out the bulk of the world's gadgets from iPhones to PlayStations, right? Apple is looking to build supply in areas like India and Vietnam. In fact, Apple uh, and, and companies associated with Apple are investing hundreds of millions of dollars to build new factories in India, Vietnam, and other places. You're seeing a massive divestiture from China because China continues to operate like this. Now, Xi Jinping's speech at the Chinese Communist Party uh, People's Congress was that, oh, well, we want, we like capitalism. And even though we still like socialism, we really like capitalism. So I really, I really hope that, uh, and I have this hopium, that Tesla can get through this sort of like verbal drama with China because I think China's realizing, crap, a lot of manufacturers are leaving because we're being too manipulative. So I think China can talk a big talk, like North Korea waving the saber, but I think they're realizing manufacturers are leaving. Behind the scenes, nine out of 10 of Apple's most important suppliers may be preparing large-scale moves to countries like India. That means out of China. Bloomberg estimates it could take eight years to move just 10% of Apple's capacity outside of China. So China still has time. China's got time. But, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing this transition away from China. It's not just manufacturers, though, that are trying to transition away from China. You have to consider the, the rich people that are leaving China as well. And this is also quite interesting. I mean, look at this particular article here. The Chinese ultra-rich feel like they are being penalized by government policies. Remember what happened with Jack Ma? Jack Ma disappeared for three months. Some people think he got sent to a Chinese re-education camp because he was shitting on China, basically. Sorry, shouldn't say that bad word. Anyway, relocation experts say crazy spending habits of Chinese wealthiest citizens are sending Asian city state real estate markets berserk. And this is sort of the, the, the subline over here talking about sky high rents in certain markets and that. But really what you're finding is a lot of the rich are disappearing to other markets. 
whether that's Singapore or, uh, you know, a Chinese autonomous district like in Macau. Uh, you are seeing, though, these sort of draconian regulations on the Chinese rich and companies in China driving people out of China. Here's another piece. Take a look at this. Here's a Wall Street Journal piece. As China reopens, flight of wealthy Chinese to Singapore set to accelerate. And so when we go through the piece, what do we see here? Andrew Amolis, whatever, Amoyles, whatever, head of research at New World Wealth, says he expects departures from China in 2023 to pick up alongside a broader revival in rich individuals moving across around the world. The company expects 125K people with net worths of more than a million dollars to, uh, to move this year exceeding the record in 2019 of 110K. Chinese nationals usually account for 8 to 10% of that total. New Wealth tracks the behavior of 150K individuals in a database to derive its estimates of migration, basically people moving out of China because of the, uh, uh, the, the restrictive policies that you have in China. But at the same time, it's also worth noting the United States it's trying to slap uh, slap uh, China over the head as well. U.S.-China uh, tensions over Taiwan are expanding. Uh, the United States recognizes that China is seen as a competitor, not an ally. You've got uh, potentially uh, multiple bills in Congress uh, being uh, potentially passed to limit China and China's expansion here. Look at this. House Bill uh, H.R. 554 would allow the Treasury Secretary to bar Chinese individuals and their families from receiving financial services uh, from U.S. institutions. H.R. 510, pressure from the uh, International Monetary Fund uh, regarding uh, manipulation of Chinese currency. H.R. 803, excluding Chinese officials from meetings of the G20. H.R. 540, supporting membership of Taiwan and the International Monetary Fund. H.R. 839, pressuring the IMF to advocate for more currency transparency in China on its exchange rate, holding China accountable. Basically, the CHIPS Act, limiting China's access to advanced manufacturing chips. You've got a lot of pressure coming on China. So even though, even though we know at this point, I think it's pretty safe to say, can't say with 100% certainty, but I think we could pretty much agree the following. Gain-of-function research happens. Even though when people tell you it's not happening, it's just because they want you to use the word directed evolution. It's nearly the same damn thing. Then, not only that, but we have to realize that China's going to wave its saber because they have egg on their face. They done effed up, okay? They effed up. The big, the, the, the primary doctor who first announced uh, in, in, I believe it was November of 2019, that something bad has happened and there's a really bad new infectious disease going around, who ended up dying of COVID, by the way. Uh, you know, the guy was in his 40s and people are like, uh-huh, he died of COVID? Mm -hmm. Who pinched the IV? Uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, he was announcing that, that this disaster is coming. China's like, oh yeah, we got a little problem from a flea market or whatever, a wet market. We, we, we don't think this is gonna expand. Anyway, China's got egg on their face for this. And they're getting, a, they're getting a lot of backlash from the international community, especially the capitalist community. Uh, and China doesn't want to see their manufacturing flee or their rich people flee, but that's exactly what's happening. So on one hand, I think China's probably going to make oppressive comments and kind of lash out at Elon Musk's, at Elon Musk's endeavors. But on the other hand, I think they're really handcuffed in terms of what they can actually do because they don't want things to worsen. Uh, they, they don't want to be in a situation where all of a sudden, oh crap, we are actually losing more uh, people, more manufacturers, uh, and now our economic growth is being more constrained. 
Remember, they had this whole massive, if we build it, they will come idea of building ghost cities, and that turned into a disaster. Some of these ghost cities were so poorly built that China is now demolishing a lot of, uh, a lot of, oh, maybe not a lot, but a, a chunk of these ghost cities because these buildings were built so poorly, it's cheaper to just demolish them and rebuild them than actually try to retrofit them and fix them. It's crazy. But uh, China's got a lot of work to do, and I think they're really limited in terms of how aggressive they can be because they're not in a position to be aggressive. They're in a position to talk loudly, but then behind the scenes, let Tesla keep expanding. And then in the meantime, we as a society, we need to figure out how do we feel about directed evolution. Anyway, let me know in the comments down below. All right. Oh, dear Lord. Kevin is behind schedule today. Oh, I know. Okay. So, boy, there's so much to cover. I think I've got maybe one more thing I need to cover because it's it's uh, quick and uh, relevant today. Uh, how do we want to pull this off? Oh, boy, there's so many stories. I need to, I say I need to start earlier. That's the plan. I got to not start at 4.55 a.m. I got to start at like 4.15 a.m. We wouldn't have this problem. Um, that's all right. Some of the, you know what? Some of the stories I'll just cover tomorrow. Uh, anyway, I, I look, today's the flash sale. Uh, check out the flash sale via the links uh, down below. I've got to run to the course member live stream. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. And thank you so much for being here for Meet Kevin Report number 38. See you soon. Goodbye.